Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Palmerbet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight-up screamer! Download our app today and enjoy straight-up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same-game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. As always, it's a great pleasure to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives, our final edition of 2018. And we've celebrated the sporting lives of a lot of great champions over this year. And we have another one joining us today. He wore the baggy green 56 times for Australia. And he's going to become a very familiar voice and a familiar face over the next couple of months because you're going to be seeing and hearing him a lot with the cricket coverage that is coming up. His name is Simon Kadich and he joins us from the studios in Sydney. Simon, welcome. Thank you, Peter. I guess this is a time that you're looking forward to because it's only a few days now before the start of the first test and as I said, you're going to be part of the SEN coverage of uh, cricket and various other stations around Australia and part of the Channel 7 coverage. So it's a very busy summer coming up for you. It certainly is and it's always an exciting time, uh, particularly with India coming. It's a huge series. They think that they're a chance to win this series in Australia for the first time. They've never won here before so uh, Virat Kohli's a, a very determined leader. Uh, he's got a very good squad with him but uh, Australia will f- still feel that they uh, can get the job done in Australian conditions and that's what's exciting. No one knows what's going to happen so uh, I think everyone's waiting for that first ball to be bowled in Adelaide and, and to see how it all unfolds. I think the one thing Simon that everyone's been struck by with the T20 games that we've seen so far is the predominance of Indian fans in the crowd it's a bit like playing at Eden Gardens. It certainly is. And, and ironically, uh, during the Sydney game, I, I got a, a text from, uh, I work in the IPL uh, coaching over there and our CEO there at KKR, which is where we do play at, at Eden Gardens, uh, is our home ground. He texted saying, are you sure that game's in Sydney and not in <laughs> India? Because it just looked like there was so many Indian fans at the SCG the other night. I think there was about a crowd of 37,000. And I mean, it's great to see that, that level of crowd at the cricket, but also the passion and the noise that they bring. And um, I think Australian supporters could well be outnumbered this summer. So uh, it's not every day you get a chance to see, you know, world-class performers like Virat Kohli and these sorts of players. So I think uh, it augurs to be a fantastic summer of cricket. I mentioned your involvement in the coverage coming up, and I'll talk more about the radio side of it in a moment. But TV is something that is a little bit new. And, of course, it's, um, it's been a very close shop, if you like, over the years because of the Channel 9 commentary team, but now it's gone to seven. Things are changing. You're looking forward to the challenge of television because it's a different medium than radio, the one that you're used to. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, I don't have any TV experience and, and having done radio for the last three years with Jared and, and learning a lot from him, I no doubt be asking uh, for a few pointers and, and 
learning as much as I possibly can because it is totally different to, to radio where you do have that blank canvas to try and explain what is happening out in the middle. Obviously, in TV, there's, there's going to be pictures that everyone can see that. So, um, look, hopefully I can adjust to it and, and learn from those around me. I think, you know, we've got a, a fantastic team of, of guys and girls that have, have got a lot of experience in TV uh, and I'm looking forward to, to hopefully... Uh, being a part of that team and, and contributing however I can. Having worked with Channel 7 over the years a lot, Simon, I can tell you one of the things that they will be saying to you, and that is embrace the sounds of the game. That's something that they're very big on with their sports production. What's your stand on the stump mics and whether we should hear them a lot or a little? Uh, do you think they should be turned down uh, when they do turn them down? Where do you stand on this? Well, I think, uh, you know, the players have become so used to, uh, I guess, part of the game being opened up now is, is that, you know, there's there's so many different avenues that the, the public can see the players preparing, whether it's, you know, pre-game, during the breaks or, or after test matches or, or whatever form of the game it is. And, and some of the insights now that the media do bring in all the different forms are phenomenal. And it, and it has changed so much. And I remember sitting on the bench at, at one of the Scorchers games a few years ago and, and one of the batsmen was coming off and, and Justin Langer was actually next to me when he was coaching the Scorchers. And, and he, he looked at me and just said, there's no way in the world I would be doing that when I was playing, you know, talking to someone as I'm walking off and probably disappointed that he got out. And that's where it's changed. The players deserve a lot of credit for, for being able to embrace the change and and to allow the viewer into, you know, their thoughts and what's going on, um, you know, up close and personal throughout the match. So they deserve a lot of credit for that. But when it comes to the stump mics, um, you know, at times I'm torn because I think, you know, what's happening out in the middle, it's, it's always a tough game. But played between men and, and there's going to be times it gets heated um, and you, you hope that it doesn't go too far and, and that's obviously what the captains and the umpires are there to do but there's times where if those mics were turned up it might actually help with the behaviour because the players would know that they can't go over the top because otherwise everyone at home is going to hear them carrying on like a pork chop or, or whatever it is that's it's being said so you know there's an argument for both um, and it's hard to say one way or the other, which one's right. So I'm a little bit torn when it comes to the stump mics. I'll give you a question without notice here. I was just thinking while you were talking about that and, and some of the things that we've heard on stump mics. Darren Berry's been a guest on this program before and uh, he was pretty good behind the stumps. He'd, he'd offer you plenty of advice and I heard him a couple of times on stump mics say words that perhaps shouldn't have gone on television. When you were standing at the crease, who was the bloke who would have caused the uh, guy in the van to hit the beep button more than anybody um, who was the, the well, sledger that got your attention the best when you were standing at the crease? Well, in state cricket, the man you just mentioned was, was pretty damn good. <laughs> he was uh, good. And he had a few helpers helpers there in Victoria as well. So there was always a few chirpy, uh, whether it was quick bowlers or, or even Darren himself behind the stumps. But look, from a competitive point of view, you know, that sometimes that got me going. I loved it. So And I got, gave as good as I got. So when it came to those personal battles, more often than not, I kept my mouth shut out there. But there were times where if I felt it was going to help me fire me up and, and get a good performance, then, then I might 
chirp back. So you'll, you always go on, on uh, how you feel at the time and whether it's appropriate. But Darren Berry was probably one of the best. And, and I guess, uh, you know, one of the guys that he loved keeping to the most, Shane Warne, I did play him a few times in state cricket. And he was a fantastic competitor. And while everyone probably thinks he used to say a lot out there, I know he certainly never really said too much to me, but he, he certainly... You know, he worked the umpires over beautifully. He was always chatting to them. He was always in a friendly manner. And, and the way he did that certainly helped his cause when it came to getting, you know, favourable decisions. So you've got to compliment him for, for the fact that he was clever enough to use that to his advantage um, without going stupid with what he was saying to the batsman. But I'm sure there was a few batsmen and Daryl Cullen and brings to mind yes. in terms of the mind games that Shane played with him and, and that's where if you can get an advantage over someone that you think might struggle with a bit of verbal then uh, that's part of the game Just one supplementary question on the subject we're talking about now uh, what's the funniest sledge what's the cleverest sledge that you've ever heard because there are so many stories in cricket probably more so than any other sport about some of the, the clever sledges that go on and the funny ones what's, what was the one that actually made you cackle the most? Well, the best one I heard was in a club game many years ago in Perth, and it was a typical hot Saturday afternoon. There wasn't much happening, and as I mentioned, you know, keepers are pretty chirpy, and our keeper said to the opposition batsman, he said, hey, Gluey, if there was an ugly 11, you'd be skipper. And the batsman turned around quick as a flash, and he said, Celia, I saw your missus the other day, and she's batting three. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's brilliant stuff. That's, that's the sort of stuff that we do want, and we'll talk more about what's going on in the game of cricket um, as this hour progresses, no down with regards to radio I've got to say Simon over the last few years that I almost enjoy listening to the cricket as much as I enjoy watching it because there there is something about the coverage of cricket on radio that lends itself to the whole broader spectrum of the coverage it's not just covering sport it's a conversation about the game that lasts for six or seven hours it's when it works it is untouchable Look, it's, it's an amazing uh, part of the, the media to be involved in. I, I never thought I'd end up working in radio, but the opportunity came up to work with Jared and, and Chris and Dirk and Jim Maxwell and, and everyone at ABC. And um, for the last three years, I've certainly learned a lot. I, I must admit, you know, for me growing up, it was about the TV and I probably uh, was guilty of, of not having the radio on. And, and if anything, I probably listened to the footy more on the radio growing up in Perth mm. than I did um, than cricket because, you know, trying to get the results of the VFL back in the day um, that's that was how how we probably did it um, before you know every game was broadcast so for me now to be a part of that coverage and and I've learned a lot in the last couple of years about how many people do appreciate getting the coverage in rural areas or or those that are working at the time and, and just like to get score updates and uh, it's been a pleasure to be involved and, and hopefully providing you know a, a nice conversation around not only what's happening out the middle but as you say there's so many issues in the game in the last few years that we've covered on air um, that might not necessarily get any airtime time um, depending on what's happening out in the middle and, and sometimes you get that opportunity whether it's with rain breaks or or some slow periods of the test match that inv invariably happen on flat wickets here in Australia so those conversations uh, you know are what people like to contribute to and 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 have a say in. You can also find yourself talking about anything apart from cricket. Drew Morfitt, the late and great Drew Morfitt, was um, a great mate of mine and one of the guests on this program. And he told the story about the day he and Harsha Bogle were eating chilies. I don't know whether you remember that or whether you've heard it or not, but it was 15 minutes of the best radio you've ever heard in your life. 
I never heard it, but uh, you know, when it comes to Drew Morford, I mean, for me, he was a legend because I used to grow or well, growing up watching the winners on a on a Sunday evening on the ABC, and and he was obviously you know the front man for that, and and that's you know my memory of Drew and having met him a couple of times over the years uh, when he was working in radio around cricket. Um, you know, f- for me, he was an absolute icon of, of AFL footy with that show or VFL back in the day. So um, I never heard the story about the Chilies, but I'm glad I wasn't there having to partake in them. Well, if ever you can find it, if ever someone's got a copy of it, have a listen to it because it's just brilliant stuff. Um, you talked about being a, a Western Australian boy and your love of footy. Uh, who was your team? Well, I grew up supporting Richmond. Uh, when I was young, I got a, uh, a beanie and a little Richmond book back in the, the 80s, um, you know, from a friend of my mum's in, in Melbourne and stayed loyal ever since. And, and there were some tough times, you know, in the early 90s, uh, going to school in Perth and, and finishing school in, in 1992 when West Coast were dominant and won the flag. You know, every Monday morning was a tough affair for me. I'd cop it from everyone or my mates that, you know, followed the, the VFL and, and obviously then the AFL. So... Um, you know, a lot of tough years, but then last year was one of the best days of my life. It was the first grand final ever got to go to, and to see Richmond play the way they did against Adelaide and just, you know, crush them after half time was just a magnificent memory for me. And, and hopefully, we'll get to see a few more as Richmond supporters in the coming years because uh, the squad they've got at the moment, uh, it's been great to see them change, you know, in such a short space of time after some really tough times. You know, it was only a couple of years ago, I think we finished 16th, and Everyone had written us off, but uh, great to see the club doing so well, not only on the field, but also off it as well. And you've also had some involvement at uh, AFL level in recent years with the Giants, who are pretty close to a premiership as well. Tell us what your role was there. Yeah, so when I finished playing um, Big Bash cricket, I think we we played the Big Bash final in Perth on the Friday night. was magnificent to go out on a high, finishing my career there. And then on the Monday morning, I think at 7.30, I started my first ever proper job, so to speak, with <laughs> uh, with the Giants. And my role there was to, to set up a leadership program with our sports psychologist, and we worked closely together doing that over the, the next couple of years. And, and then part of my other role was to be game day runner for Leon Cameron. So mm. that was an interesting role, having to run sort of anywhere from 16 to 20 Ks every weekend. And... Geez, it was tough work on my old calves, but uh, a real eye-opener getting to, to understand the pressures that the players go through on game day, and it certainly helped with my role um, on a Monday morning when we, we ran the leadership program, and we also ran an emerging leaders program as well um, for those younger players that we had identified um, with the standards of behaviour that were set at the club. And, you know, to do it from scratch, really, because, you know, the club hadn't, had only just been formed for a few years and, and it was a great time to be there and I loved my time at the club it's a fantastic set of young athletes I certainly learned a lot seeing how they went about their business uh, but then after a couple of years uh, the toll it took on, on I guess family life and, and having two youngsters at home I had to, to get back into cricket and, and just to have a bit more time with my boys so uh, I loved my time at the Giants but unfortunately uh, had to had to change that after two years you might have divided allegiances in the next couple of years because you might see a Richmond GWS grand final. We've been close to getting that over the past couple of years. 
Yes, I took my son to the prelim final. Uh, He's a massive Giants fan, having met a few of the boys, and I take him to quite a few of the games in Sydney. So he he loves the Giants. And uh, I was quite torn that day because obviously wanted to see Richmond do well, but also wanted to see uh, my boys at the Giants do well too. So, And for my son's sake, I was actually hoping that uh, he got to have the last laugh. But, um, you know, their time will come. The amount of hard work and effort that's gone into setting that club up and and that's what's... Uh, is probably the biggest thing that gets overlooked a lot of the time with the Giants is that having seen it firsthand, yes, they have been given a lot of draft concessions and, and, and top picks, but you know the amount of effort that's gone into these young guys and, and they got smashed early on uh, and did it the hard way, hopefully they'll, they'll come out of it better for it and, and have some success in the coming years. But uh, let's see what happens. You never know in this game, uh, anything can happen, and particularly in AFL, it, it changes from year to year. We've just completed our first segment of the program. We've touched on all the important things, footy, cricket, sledging, the media, but we've still got plenty more to talk about. So Simon Kadich will be back on the other side of the break on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. And what a pleasure it is to have Simon Kadich as my final guest for 2018 as we get set for a brilliant summer of cricket with the Test Series starting during the week. Simon, how did a boy with uh, Croatian heritage find himself uh, in the suburb of Perth loving the game of cricket? How did that all begin? Well, like a lot of young uh, players back in those days, you know, I I grew up watching the coverage on Channel 9 and, and loving watching you know, one-day cricket and, and test cricket on the TV. And I guess for me, during that period, I fell in love with the West Indians because they were dominating world cricket. And my idol growing up was Sir Viv Richards. And, you know, that's probably what drew me to the game is seeing these guys play the game uh, on TV. And then you go out in the in the front yard, it was for me. Um, you know, I grew up on sort of semi-rural property in, in the Swan Valley in Perth where we had 12 acres and had plenty of space. So the front lawn was, was a hot spot in summer and, and uh, you know, constantly asking mum and dad to bowl plenty of balls to me uh, in the front lawn. And if not, I just threw the ball up against the wall and tried to hit it back against the brick wall So and occupy myself. But, yeah, just always loved the game. No one really played it in my family, as you said. You know, my, my grandparents were emigrated from... Uh, from Yugoslavia, what was Yugoslavia before it all got split mm. up? Um, I think in the late 30s, and and you know my dad didn't really have any idea about cricket. He was probably more soccer background, and and no one on mum's side uh, really played the game either. So it was just purely from that point of view, and I think that's probably how a lot of kids pick it up from watching it on TV, and and then try and go and emulate their heroes uh, out in the backyard. So um, yeah, it's simple as that. I think most of us played cricket at school to varying degrees of success, but the next step is where you start playing club cricket. What was your club? I grew up uh, in the Swan Valley, as I mentioned, and and my local club was Middle Swan Junior Cricket Club, and uh, I started playing there, I think, in the under-10s when I was about nine years of age, and then uh, thankfully got to... picked for you know the rep teams of the area which was the Midland Guildford Cricket Club and you know I look back on my career now and and feel very very blessed uh, to be involved at Midland Guildford Cricket Club because it was a very strong club we had a history of producing test players and you know to get to play at the club from an age of I think uh, you know 10 or 11 in the under 13s and then to progress through the ranks the under 15s and under 17s before I played first grade cricket you know 
you just never know how your career is going to pan out um, if you, you happen to be at a different club. But the amount of support that I got and, and the amount of valuable uh, information and mentoring that I got from the likes of Tom Moody, who was my first captain at WA, and I got to play with him at club cricket, and not only him, but Brendan Julian and Joe Angel and Tim Zura and these guys that had all had international careers or, or a couple of them were just starting at that time, you know, Joe and Brendan. But... Um, my mentor at the club, Kevin Gartrell, had coached Alex Stewart, who ended up playing for England for a lot of years, and, and obviously Tom and a few of the other players there. So to have that experience around me, and, and Kevin was a former first-class cricketer himself for WA, um, you know, that guidance, you know, it was invaluable and, and something that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for because without it, you know, I may never have played even for WA without it. You bloomed very quickly when you started playing state cricket. You made a lot of runs. When did you start believing that you had what it takes to wear that famous baggy green cap? Well, when I was about 16, I played my, I made my first grade debut for Midland Guildford and, and that's when Kevin Gartrell took me aside and said, look, I'm happy to do some extra work with you. I think you can play um, potentially for WA and, and maybe even for Australia. And, and, and that's when the penny dropped that, you know, if someone like that with his experience in the game and having coached Alex Stewart and, and Tom Moody and these guys felt that, then it certainly gave me a bit of a boost to think, oh, maybe that could happen. But I, I certainly never believed it was just going to happen because I was fully aware that there's a big difference between underage cricket and then the men's cricket. I'd, I'd trained at the club and seen the men's nets and, and seeing the how quick the the first grade bowlers were standing behind the nets when I was a kid at sort of 15 and 16 and then you know the next thing I know I'm playing with them as a 16 year old and and that to me was a great grounding in in learning the game and and trying to make that step up from junior cricket to, to senior cricket but then having done the hard yards with Kevin from sort of 17 through to to 18 19 whilst I was at uni studying when I did get my chance for WA, I felt that I was ready after a good six-month period at the academy and then uh, I pretty much took my opportunity um, straight away and, and felt comfortable at state level almost from the word go. And, and I think that certainly helped because once you have that belief that you're good enough at state level, then you know if you can keep performing consistently, there might be a chance to play for Australia. But given the strength of the Australian team back then, I also knew that that may never happen because you know the batting order never changed and it was such a strong top six um, you know I was just happy playing state cricket so for me it, it, there was never any sort of rush to think oh, I've got to get in the Australian team I just was happy playing state cricket for WA and trying to do as well as I could there to, to help us win shields and one day titles so the dream is that you're going to get the call from the selectors and they're going to tell you that you've uh, achieved national selection and that call came but am I right in saying that illness put paid to that straight away you were going to tour Sri Lanka I think yeah so I got picked in 1999 um, to go to Sri Lanka I think the tour is in August and in I think it was April May that year at the end of the shield season uh, we'd had a successful shield uh, we'd won the, the title up in uh, Brisbane uh, and then I got sick not long after uh, and had glandular fever so that sort of knocked me around for a few months where I wasn't feeling great and it sort of had to back off in my training and then I recovered to the point where you know I got picked for the tour and I was able to go on the tour to Sri Lanka but then unfortunately in Sri Lanka sort of halfway through the trip I got chickenpox and so having had two 
you know, pretty big viruses within the space of six months. It, it knocked me around physically. And, and so I came back from that tour and, and really struggled. I, I played a few Shield games, but, but struggled to get through games and ended up having to have sort of a month off cricket just to recover um, from all of that. And then eventually got back uh, for WA early the next year in, in sort of 2000. So uh, whilst I went on that tour, it was a phenomenal experience. Um, you know, to see, to go down to breakfast every morning and to see, you know, the War Brothers and McGrath and Warren and all these guys that, you know, I'd grown up over the previous, you know, five years or so watching on TV and, and, and like loving the way they played the game. Uh, next thing I know, I'm, I'm at breakfast with them in Sri Lanka and, and it really was quite daunting at times, but um, the guys made me feel really welcome and, and it's something that uh, I look back on very fondly to be a part of such a you know a phenomenal Australian team during that era. You touched, Simon, on your recovery uh, physically and then in that 2000-2001 season, you make nearly 1,300 runs, but then came an upheaval, I guess, because you go from one side of the country to the other. What was the reason behind the move from WA to New South Wales? Yeah, so I recovered after the, uh, I guess, the chicken pox and glandular fever. And, and so prior to that summer for WA in, in 2001 or 2000-2001, um, I'd been to Durham, which was my first experience of county cricket. And, and I think that was... That really toughened me up because the conditions over there were really challenging. It was a tough wicket to bat on, and I was only 24 at the time and, and managed to get, you know, over a thousand runs for the season there. And that gave me a lot of confidence because there were foreign conditions. I think when you play in WA, you do get judged as being, a, you know, a fast bouncy wicket specialist. And to be a Test player, you obviously need to be able to play in all different conditions. So. Um, fortunately, I, I got picked for the 2001 Ashes Tour on the back of that summer for WA um, and and went on that Ashes Tour. Made my debut when Steve Waugh got injured in the, before the fourth test. And, you know, it's something that was very, very special, uh, receiving my baggy green from, you know, an icon of Australian cricket in Richie Benno. And, and that's something that I'll never forget because, you know, he, when he presented me my baggy green cap, he said, there are many more important things in life than a baggy green cap, but to an Australian cricketer is the ultimate achievement. Every time you wear it, wear it with pride and enjoy yourself. And, and that's something I never forgot throughout my career and something I'm very grateful for that, you know, an icon of Australian cricket um, gave me, took the time to give me my baggy green cap. And then not long after that, um, you know, about a year later, I found myself having to make the tough decision of leaving uh, family and friends and, and more teammates in WA to, to go to Sydney. And I think the big part of that, there was a couple of reasons. One, I, I hadn't enjoyed my last season of, of cricket in WA. There'd been a lot of change on and off the field there. Tom Moody had retired the year before. Uh, Mike Valletta had come in as coach. There was a lot of change, and and I struggled to deal with that. Um, and as a result, it started to made me question whether I was going to enjoy my cricket there moving forward. So uh, New South Wales approached, um, and and I when I got the offer, I, I sort of thought. You know, do I want to look back on my career in you know five, ten years, or where, however long it's going to go for, and have any regrets, or do I want to just take this opportunity and, and see where it goes? And I look back now, and and whilst you know part of me would have loved to have played my whole career in WA, um, but the other part of me also knows that I can look back on my career now and, and know that, that I do have no regrets because I I did what I felt was right at the time. Um, you know, I'm very lucky to have that opportunity presented by New South Wales cricket, and um, you know for the next sort of 10 or 12 years that I played for New South Wales you know I loved playing there with the players and, and achieving success in the different formats that we did and, and getting to captain them as well so 
you know, I felt very lucky that that opportunity came up. And as a result of that, my, my game benefited from, from having the exposure to playing at the SCG and playing in totally con- different conditions. The cynics from other parts of Australia, Simon, would say, oh, well, you just wanted NSW after your name because that's the passport to getting in the test team. Yeah, look, there's always that uh, commentary around playing for New South Wales. Um, I never believed it because I, I knew that I'd played for Australia prior to moving to New South Wales. So I always felt that if you made plenty of runs, you would get looked at. And, and that's what happened in my personal situation. Um, you know, I played, I got picked for a couple of tours prior to, to when I moved to Sydney in 2002. But I also knew that for my game to develop, I had to get better at playing spin. And I also felt that I wanted to improve my spin bowling. And, and that's the hard part about playing in Perth is that you don't get to bowl a lot of overs with the quality of attack we did uh, have at the time. Very rarely did I, I get to bowl or, or when it comes to batting, you would get judged on the fact that you make a lot of runs on a, on a fast, bouncy whack of wicket. Whereas, you know, you go to India nowadays or tour the subcontinent, you've got to be able to play spin. And so that was part of my thinking. I understand that people are always going to say that, you know, it's, it's about trying to play for New South Wales. It gives you an easy run into the Australian team. But look, at the end of the day, you can't, uh, you know, all you can do is just score runs and, and hopefully you're good enough. And I'd like to think hopefully when I did get that chance later in my career that, um, you know, I proved I was good enough to, to open the batting for Australia. And you talked about your bowling. Understandably, most of this program is going to be devoted to your batting deeds. But I want you to take us to Zimbabwe. Six for 65. That was pretty handy. Yeah, look, I get a fair bit of stick from the boys over that because it wasn't their full-strength team. Obviously, a lot of their very, very good players. I mean, when Zimbabwe were full-strength, you know, with the likes of the Flower Brothers and Alistair Campbell and Murray Goodwin and and Heath Streak and these guys, when they were all playing, they had a serious uh, cricket team, no matter what the format. Uh, But at that point in time, when I played them in, in late 2003, 2004, that summer... Um, you know, a lot of those players weren't there, and so uh, I cop a bit of stick from the boys that it was probably the Zimbabwe second eleven. But you know, it's still nice to get wickets, and and uh, I'll take the six for. But also know that you put it in context, uh, it's probably not the strongest uh, opposition that I, I was going to come up against as a bowler in Test cricket. No, you don't need to put that in wisdom. You don't need to say the strength of the team; it'll still be there, six for sixty-five, and it'll be there for eternity. So take it, mate. Take it. <laughs> well, uh, you, the good thing about it is you can't. See that most of them were caught out at deep mid wicket or, or off half trackers or full tosses. So that's the beauty about the scorecard. All right, there's one highlight in the career of Simon Cadditch. When we come back on the other side of the break, there is plenty more still to discuss. Great to have Simon as my final guest for 2018 on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. Much more coming up after the break. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. A great privilege to have Simon Kadich as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Simon, we spoke about that uh, debut ashes test, uh, getting the baggy green from Richie, the feats in Zimbabwe. You couldn't quite get a cemented spot in the team, though. I think at one stage, Andrew Simons was preferred to you. So it was hard to lock away that spot in the team early on. Yeah, look, uh, when I did sort of get into the team in that, 
2003-2004 series and played Zimbabwe and then India. Uh, had, a, had a really good series against India. Uh, and then Steve Waugh retired. And then the next series we played in Sri Lanka. You know, the balance of the team, they wanted to change. They probably wanted more of an all-rounder at six. And, and I got dropped for the very next test match after I'd made my maiden 100 for Australia in the Sydney test against India. And, and that was probably, you know, something that uh, was tough to take. We'd gone to Sri Lanka, got a 100 in the tour match, was playing as well as I ever had, had a really good summer for New South Wales. And then next thing I know, I got dropped from the team. And I understand why. Obviously, you know, Andrew Simons is a far better all-round option than I was and, and was no doubt better suited to batting at six than I was as well. But at the time, I probably didn't realise that and, and uh, took a while to, to, you know, come to terms with being left out when I felt that, you know, I'd, I'd earned my spot in the team from the previous series against India. But, you know, moving forward, I managed to get back in. And I guess I look back on my career now and, and feel lucky that I was fortunate to play, you know, 56 tests given the, the quality of players that was around Australia at the time. But I think when I look back and, and got that opportunity to open for the last 30-odd tests of my career, um, it probably, you know, it suited me best to open the batting or bat top of the order. And I did get an opportunity to bat at number three in 2004 Indian series when Ricky Ponting had broken his thumb and did really well batting at three. And, and that was probably, you know, where I was best suited. And I look back now and probably should have realised better that maybe number six, you know, wasn't ideal for me in test cricket, even though I felt at the time it was, you know, a great opportunity. Um, you know, maybe it was just wasn't meant to be. So uh, to get that opportunity, you know, finally at the top of the order at, at the back of end of my career was was something I'm grateful for and it was nice to be able to you know make the most of that and and it it suited my game to get out there and and take on that new ball. This was in the era before T20 and the dominance that it's exerted over Australian cricket in recent years but one day cricket was still pretty big at that time. Did you always see yourself as principally a test player uh, and then a one day player or did you think that you were um, very capable at both disciplines of the game? Look, I always thought I was stronger in the longer format of the game because my game was about occupying the crease for long periods of time. Although, when I played for Australia, I probably played a different style to how I played for you know WA or New South Wales because the level below, you know, once you're confident at that level and you know you've got your spot, you, you can play with that freedom. And I definitely played a much more aggressive game at Shield level um, than I did playing for Australia. But that was probably a byproduct of knowing that you know when opportunities are limited, you don't want to you know miss out on those, and you probably do have to pull back the reins a little bit. Um, and there were times, I guess, once I did get comfortable in my role, particularly when I was opening at the back end of my career, that I probably did play with a little bit more freedom at times, which is how I liked to bat. Um, but I think my game was suited better to test cricket. Um, I did get opportunities to play one-day cricket for Australia. Um, I had played well opening the batting for New South Wales in domestic cricket, uh, but playing for Australia is a different kettle of fish and, and that's something that you know I wasn't able to score quickly enough um, when I was doing that and, and as a result lost my spot and that that was perfectly understandable given that you know one day cricket is all about aggression and um, taking the bowlers on and you know with the beauty of hindsight, I wish maybe having played a lot of T20 at the back end of my career, not only for the Scorchers and in the Big Bash, but also overseas, um, I felt that I did make the adjustments to play a lot more aggressively in the shorter formats on the back of playing more T20. And I think had my um, you know one-day career coincided with, with 
that period in my career, then then I might have been able to, uh, you know, play a lot more aggressively for Australian one-day cricket, but that's the way it pans out. On the subject of limited overs cricket, when Shane Watson was preferred for you in the 2007 World Cup, did you feel as though your international career was just on the ledge at that stage, that it could have tipped one way or the other? Yeah, look, uh, basically in, in 2007, uh, I went to England in early April to, to play for Derbyshire in the county comp and uh, I got a call well, a couple of days in to, to getting there from Andrew Hilditch saying that, uh, you know, you, you're not in the contract list and uh, we're not going to pick you again for Australia. And I mean, I knew I probably wasn't going to play one day cricket for Australia again, but I'd had a really good shield season for New South Wales. I think it averaged in the 60s. Um, we'd just played in a final, but lost it down in Tassie, uh, but had, a, had had a very good summer personally. And then to hear that they were never going to pick me again, um, you know, came as a bit of a shock, but um, it's something that I, I copped on the chin. I think I was 31 years of age at the time, and I just realised that, look, if that's the way it's going to be, then, you know, i just got to enjoy my cricket wherever I'm going to play it. So, if anything, it probably freed me up a little bit, and, and my mindset um, hadn't changed that much over my career, but I just, when I heard those words, I felt, well, you know what, wherever I'm going to play my cricket, whether it's club for Randwick Petersham or state cricket for New South Wales or, or county cricket for Derby. I'm just going to go out there, try and score as many runs as I can and help the team win as many games as cricket as I can because I was captaining Derby at the time and also New South Wales. So that role probably helped me realise that, you know, it's about the team trying to win games of cricket and, and I had to contribute as much as I could with a bat. So uh, on the back of hearing all that, I had a really good summer with Derby, scored a lot of runs and then came back home to, w, uh, to New South Wales and, um, you know, I think it was the year I broke the all-time record for mm. the most runs in a Shield season. And, and next thing you know, I think the next May, about a year after Andrew Hilditch had told me those words, they were picking me again for Australia. And, and then from 2008 through to 2010 when I finished, um, you know, I had the best time in my career playing for Australia, opening the batting. And, and that's something that uh, you know, I look back on now and, and just am really... Uh, I guess not only grateful for that opportunity but also um, glad that I never gave up and, and, and something that uh, I'm really proud of. Just reverting to that Shield season, that remarkable Shield season for a moment, Simon. 1,500 runs, you averaged 94, but there was one particular innings at the SCG where you made 306 and you were the first triple century scorer at the ground since Bradman. Does that rank up there with your great moments? Yeah, look, uh, it was an amazing uh, game because, you know, at, at no point did I think uh, that would ever happen, uh, scoring a 300 and given the state of the game. But it's it's funny what happens when, you know, I got to the 100 and it was probably around lunchtime and then given the way the game was panning out, we were still, I think, like 200 runs behind or something like that. And we thought, oh, what we'll do is we'll try and go out there, score some quick runs after lunch and then pull out behind and, and try and set a game up. And Brad Had and I went out after lunch and, and there was a long session because there'd been rain on day one. And so the middle session was two and a half hours. And I think in that session, we end up scoring something like 200 odd runs or, or maybe even more, might have been about 280. And <laughs> before I knew it, I was on 300. And it was just a matter of just, I was just trying to tee off whenever I could. <laughs> and and Brad always plays that way as well. So he got a quick 100 as well. And uh, as it panned out, we kept thinking, well, what are we going to do? And, and I was captain at the time and sort of get a message at drinks. And we'd say to the, I think Trevor Bayless was coach or, or no, it might have been Matthew Mott actually. And he, we'd get messages saying, no, nah, boys, keep going because 
next thing you know, we end up being 150 in front after being 150 down, and then we were putting pressure back on Queensland. Uh, and this was with a, a day and a you know a day and a bit to go. So. Um, you know, as a result of just trying to score quickly and set a game up, uh, I went from 100 to pretty much 300 in that middle session. And um, I'm not probably accustomed to, to playing that way, but it was, geez, it was good fun trying to hit balls into the stands uh, all afternoon. I'll bet it was. And you did it very successfully. And as you said, if you keep on making runs like that, then they had to pick you in the test team and you got back in. But uh, what about the ending to your test career, Simon? You've spoken about this, uh, your relationship with Michael Clark. How would you describe it? Well, it's non-existent, but uh, look, I always had the utmost respect for Michael as a as a teammate and as a you know as a player. He was a phenomenal player. Um, always say that. You know, we certainly spent a lot of time at the crease together, both for New South Wales and for Australia. Um, and he was a magnificent player. Um, but unfortunately, the end of my career coincided with him taking over the captaincy. And um, you look, I understand that that's that's the way it's panned out. But you know, at the time, I was obviously very upset because for those three years, from 2008 to 2010, you know, I think I was told by one of the journos that I think only two guys in world cricket had scored more Test runs than me in that period. And one was the great Sachin Tendulkar, and the other one was Alistair Cook, who was at the height of his his game. So, you know, that, that was probably the biggest disappointment that I'd felt I'd earned. You know my spot in the team over three really consistent years. I think it averaged over 50 opening the batting for Australia um, in those 30 or tests that I played. And you know the way it pans out, that's that's the way it, it goes. So I look back on it now, and maybe it was meant to be that way. I've had you know some great time with my young boys growing up, um, which coincided with having a family when I finished. So. Um, I've certainly got no regrets. It would have been nice to play more tests for Australia, but that's the way it was. And, uh, you know, I also feel very lucky that I was able to play 56 because there was plenty of very good players in that era that didn't even get to play one test for Australia. So I also count myself very grateful. Stories abound in sport about what happened in the inner sanctum, in the change rooms. Can you give us the definitive version of the altercation that happened between you and Michael Clark? Yeah, look, obviously there's been a, a fair bit said about it. I, I won't deny that it, it happened, but, you know, it was partly to do with, you know, the singing of the team song and, and the pressure that he was putting Michael Hussey on to, to really get on with it and, and get on with the night. Uh, and that probably led to, you know, our altercation. But I think a big part of it from my point of view was, was what he said to me and, and the personal nature of what he said. And I can't repeat that on the show, unfortunately, because I'm sure there's some ladies out there listening. But, um, you know... What was said was said, and and you know I reacted accordingly, and uh, that's that's you know I can't take that back now. Um, you know I don't I don't regret standing up for myself because I certainly wasn't going to sit there and listen to what he was saying in front of my teammates, and I certainly apologised to my teammates for for seeing him storm out and, and not come back for the for the song later on. But um, you know that's what's done is done now, and um, from my point of view, you know as soon as it happened, you know I spoke to to Ricky Ponning and our coach Tim Nielsen about you know, trying to make sure that there wasn't any issue with it moving forward. And, um, you know, Michael assured them and, and me that that wouldn't be the case. But, um, you know, whenever something like that happens to that nature, there's always going to be, um, you know, I, I guess, uh, you know, both parties are going to feel that they're in the, the right or the wrong. So, mm. look, what, what happened happened. And, uh, you know, I've moved on from that. And, you know, to me, it was a small part of my career. I don't look back on, on my career and... and 
judge myself on what happened in the dressing room. It's to me, it was over the 20 years that I played and all the great memories I've got with my teammates playing in winning teams and playing in some amazing Test series for Australia. You know, Ashes series or or, or the win in India in 2004. And I look back on that time and think, you know, I'm very lucky to have been a part of such a strong era of Australian cricket. And whilst there was that. You know, that one negative episode, uh, for me, the rest of it is really, really positive. And that's exactly the way that your career should be regarded and that's why it's been wonderful to be able to talk in depth about what you have been able to achieve. We're just about out of time, Simon. We'll take our final break. When we come back on the other side of the break, I just want to get your impressions of where Australian cricket is at the moment in light of the events in South Africa earlier this year and where it stands and whether indeed it's at the crossroads, as a lot of people would have you believe. We'll find out from Simon Kadich his thoughts on that when we come back with our final segment for 2018 on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Oh, I wish I had a dollar for every time I've said this in 2018. It's all gone too quickly with our guest today again, the same thing, Simon Kadich. Simon, our last segment... Where do you think that Australian cricket sits in the eyes of the public right at this moment on the verge of the Test Series? Look, it's uh, really at the crossroads after what happened earlier in the year in Cape Town and and then the recent findings of the ethics review that came out. Uh, So Australian cricket needs to to obviously move forward from what's happened and, and really win back the trust of the public and not only the Australian public but also you know the international cricketing public as well that that love Australian cricket and and obviously want to see it played the game played in the right manner and not go down the path that it did earlier in the year and I think there's been some positive signs in in recent days with you know a meeting between Cricket Australia and, and the Players Association which needed to happen after you know a tumultuous 12-month period with the MOU and then what unfolded with the the player behavior in Cape Town so I'd like to think that you know the players that have all gone through this period have really been affected by it and hopefully they'll learn that you know three of them have learned in a, in a very harsh way that you know the game is bigger than any individual and, and it has to be played in the right spirit and that's something the Australian team no doubt will take on board and I think under the leadership of, of Justin Langer and Tim Payne that they will move forward positively and I think hopefully when the, the band players get back into to action that the public will support them and get behind them knowing that they have done their time, they are remorseful, uh, they made a big mistake but, but that human nature is you know we forgive those mistakes because whilst at the time it was controversial and and everyone probably felt ashamed of of what happened and rightly so hopefully you know part of the the whole process the healing process is welcoming those players back and being better for the that tough experience so that uh, you know the, the public can get right behind them and encourage them to 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 make amends for for their mistake i'd agree with you that most people felt that the um, judgment was probably right for what was seen as um, one of the worst acts in Australian sport. But there was the other side of the coin saying, oh, this sort of thing happens all the time. You know, it's just overreaction. They should never have been suspended for as long as they had been. You think they got it right? Yes, I I believe so. Uh, Look, I understand that because the ICC have made it 
pretty inconsistent because of the the penalties with ball tampering. But but what I would say in this instance was that a lot of the other occasions there hasn't been the use of sandpaper and I think every player knows that you cannot take sandpaper out there to affect the, the condition of the ball and the players knew that they're always briefed on the rules and regulations of the game and from that point of view they knew that they were doing the wrong thing they admitted guilt they admitted that they blatantly cheated and as a result Cricket Australia had no option but to, to make it a, a, a healthy ban because had it only been a six-month ban the players Players would have hardly missed any cricket for Australia because there, there really was only that tour to the UAE against Pakistan that they would have missed. And then from, a, I guess, setting a precedent, you know, they had to make it, it so stiff that young players looking up to these, um, you know, the, the three, Steve Smith, Cameron Bancroft and David Warner, those, those youngsters would never follow the same path down the track. So I think it was an important precedent they sent uh, to those young kids out there that it's not acceptable. We, we're not going to condone this sort of behaviour. And, you know, the players didn't appeal it, which that, that in a way suggests that, you know, that they felt that what they did was wrong and, and they have to um, do their time now. My final question, Simon, what is more important for the Australian Test team? Is it to earn back the respect and the admiration of the public or is it to win Test matches? Look, if they can do both, which is something the Australian public would love to see, then you know they'll be lauded for that. I think first and foremost, they, they need to earn back the respect with which they play the game, and I think that will, uh, you know, that will certainly help them uh, when it comes to to getting support. Because I think, you know, to win again, they're going to need the full support of the public. Because at the moment, there's no doubt that the public is split on on what unfolded, and you know, a lot of people were very, very disappointed with with what happened in Cape Town, and rightly so. So, I think this team needs some love and to get that they're going to firstly have to play the game you know in the right fashion and and win back the respect and and ultimately once they get that support and play good cricket they'll be able to do both at the same time Uh, particularly here in Australia where they'll be confident so hopefully they can do that against India coming up have a successful series get some confidence back within the ranks and then move on to bigger and better things down the track. We've learned a few things over the last hour. We knew already that you had a brilliant career, but we've learned about your passion for the game, and that is going to come through in your television and radio work over the next couple of months. It's been a delight to talk to you. Congratulations on a magnificent career, and hopefully you're at the start of another one in the media. You've already done brilliantly on radio, and with TV with Channel 7, it's going to be a great summer. Simon, thanks for your time. My pleasure, Peter. Simon Kadich joining us for our final edition of 2018. But fear not, we'll be back next week with the best of series, some of our best interviews over the past 12 months in the same time slot. Next week on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Hope you've enjoyed all of our guests this year and we'll be back next year with an even bigger and better program. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.